Guys, if you're anything like me, looking at maps has always been a huge part of my preparation and execution for my outdoor adventures. I have been using GoHunt digital maps on desktop and mobile for quite some time now. I have used these maps for years with, for my in-depth e-scouting tactics and my methods of using offline maps during the hunt. Well, now I'm happy to report GoHunt maps now covers all 50 states. There's two ways to get the GoHunt map. You can sign up for a GoHunt Insider membership and get the benefits of all the draw odds, harvest statistics, unit breakdowns, strategy articles, as well as access to the 50 state maps, plus savings on gear for being an Insider member. Like right now, they're doing double points. For an Insider membership, sign up now at GoHunt.com, use the JScott promo code, and get a $50 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card just for signing up. You can also just sign up for a GoHunt Explorer membership, and that gives you access to 50 states for 50 bucks. Use the JScott promo code. Guys, also, don't forget to get a 10% discount on gear at the GoHunt Gear Shop by using the JScott promo code. You can also reach out to my friend Cody Nelson of 20 plus years, either by phone or by text, 602-399-3699. Make sure you tell him I sent you. I want to thank GoHunt.com for their loyal sponsorship of my podcast. We're over 815 episodes in, and they've been with me for, since the beginning. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting for their sponsorship of this podcast. They provide the gear that I use on all of my hunting adventures. You can go to the Kuyu website directly, kuiu.com, order directly. They're a direct-to-consumer company. Uh, they make the best gear in the in the hunting industry, and I've been a loyal supporter of theirs for years. Also, phonescope.com. Go to phonescope.com. Use the J. Scott or jscott22 promo code and you're going to get a 10% discount at PhoneScope. Guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for, for supporting me. If you have any questions or you'd like to send me a comment, the best way to do that is on my Instagram account at jscottoutdoors. Again, let's get right to this episode and thanks for your support. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is your guest host, Cliff Gray. Today I have on James Nash. I'm a huge fan of James James's content on Instagram, his experience and passion for hunting, shooting, and wildlife management issues is evident in all of his stuff. So I recommend all you listeners out there go go check out James con James content. James is an outfitter and guide, writer, and host of the Six Ranch podcast. James, did I miss anything there? Gosh, you know, it gets more and more complicated all the time when somebody asks me what I do. It's almost like, hey, how much time do you have for me to answer this? <laughs> um, but uh yeah, no, there's there's a lot to keep a guy busy um, if, if you want to be. And it seems like I end up creating new businesses from time to time without even realizing quite that I've done it. Uh, then I just sort of sort of realize all at once like, oh, this is its own standalone business. I need to break this off and, you know, add some more effort to it. But uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I can relate. dude. <laughs> yeah. um, but I you know what, though, man, I think uh, well, not to toot my own horn on that front, but I feel like when I run into people like you that have a bunch of stuff going on, um, they somehow find the time and they tend to be super interesting people, man. So, so you're, you're, uh, you're in that category, man. Um, but it sounds like, so you got your guiding business, you do your writing, you've got your podcast. Is there anything else? Sure. So I also do, uh, wildlife management and consulting for for private landowners and sometimes for state agencies that they want to improve either habitat or the way people are interacting with wildlife on that habitat. 
And then I also live here on the the Six Ranch, which is a, a cattle operation primarily. Um, so yeah, there's there's just a lot going on all the time. You know, yeah. any one of those things can take up all of your time. And uh, I do a lot of ambassador work as well for different brands. And that's not that's not just like a you know, hey, you know, buy this product or whatever. Sure. Because I actually get to work with work with engineers and and actually develop products and then take it all the way through the 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 marketing cycle and use the prototypes and I love that stuff. I'm not smart enough to really be qualified to do it, but for some reason people keep letting me do it and it's it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, no, that's uh that's awesome, man. And I and I see Sig Sours in that category, right? For sure. Yeah. yeah. Sig is a is a great partner and a cool brand and uh yeah we've got to do a lot of fun things together and honestly what what those engineers have accomplished in the past few years is is incredible i was a, a tank officer in the marine corps for five years and i really fell in love with a lot of the capabilities of the tank not to say that i want to go elk hunting with an abrams tank even though <laughs> i probably would if somebody would let me but a lot of those capabilities that were in that vehicle that were in that shooting system and those optics, it's hard to experience those sit out there in the desert for a long time, thinking about thinking about being home and hunting and then come back and be like, well, gosh, why doesn't my range finder here? Let me know exactly where that animal is on a hillside. Like all the technologies right here, it's just not talking to it to itself yet. Sure. Um, so yeah, being able to to talk with the folks at SIG and be able to turn some of those those features into reality for hunters has been a lot of fun. Yeah, and you, you know, I think you execute on that well, man. And we can just delve into that subject because I actually I was just responding to some comments on on my YouTube channel, kind of regarding this whole like you know ambassador or you know Instagram influencer, it, you know, working for different products or or whatever. And I think. Uh, I think there's people that do it really well, you know, and they're actually, you know, they're not pushing products that they don't, they don't, you know, they, they don't like and enjoy and, and think are the best. Um, and so what are your thoughts on that, James? Like, how does one, if you're going to be an ambassador for, for a product, like, what's your approach to it? Because I think when I look at your content, man, it's not like, I don't look at it and think, well, this guy's just selling stuff. And there are people out there when I look at their content, it's very evident. It doesn't make them, you know, in my mind, it doesn't make them bad people. It, it just, it, it just makes them maybe a less reliable source. So what, what's your take on that? Well, there's a few different ways that, that ambassadors and influencers get paid. And one of the most common ones is with a discount code. And yeah. I think we, we hear that on, on shows a lot and, and nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, but the way that works is, you know, it'll be like, Hey, buy a, buy my, you know, super elk lotion and, you know, use the <laughs> discount code, you know, never miss again and you'll get 15% off. Um, and then the consumer does get 15% off of the magic elk lotion, but I'll get 5% or 10% back sure. from the company because they can see every time that discount code has been used. Yeah. Um, so one of the ways that I've functioned to keep myself genuine and honest and authentic is to never do that. So I don't want to incentivize selling products by any other mechanism than that people believe me. 
so my currency is is honesty and and authenticity and and just that that value of like hey if this guy's saying something it's because he he believes in it and he's not necessarily trying to get a financial gain from somebody making a purchase he's trying to get a gain by more people believing what he's saying and you know that's that's how i've gone about it and i think that you get what you incentivize and if if i accept an incentive for myself that could that could erode my honesty then that's exactly what will happen yeah I, lo- I love that take on it. This, this is something that, I mean, you have, you probably have a, a larger audience than I do, James, but it's something that I've been kind of wrangling with because one thing I noticed, man, and, and just a heads up, James, I've got you on a, this monitor. So if I'm not like looking at you, man, I'm not trying to be I- impolite. You're good. I've, I've got some, <laughs> I've got some mule, some mule deer out this window right now um, at about uh, 780 yards. And one of them's got its ears up and is looking back. If uh, if I have to duck out, it's because there's a coyote out there that needs to get shot at. So <laughs> I got both, you, of, both of us have a reason to look off the monitor. Yeah, I'm like bit. I'm. I feel like I'm looking away from him. But uh, but anyways, so this the thing that's a challenge, and I I'm amazed even at the the size audience I have. I'm sure it's exponentially more for for your size audience. Um, how many new companies in the hunting world and established ones? This is like their main avenue, how they promote products now is going, you know, into, you know, massive influencers, let's call them all the way down to medium sized influencers. I mean, I get emails probably, you know, at least every few days about different products or, or, or whatever. So I love your take on it because you're right. Like you, it's all about the incentive. It's not necessarily about, you know, the company or the, or the product. Because that those can change, right? That's the other thing that I that I battle with. There there are things that I might be a huge proponent of, um, and then the next model of it I don't like as much. You know what I mean? Um, so having the the incentives right, I, I like your take on that, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take that to heart when I kind of kind of think about it too. Because I think people can read read through it, James and. You know the listeners to this podcast. I'm sure they exposed. They're exposed to it all the time. You know that some people are just. You know it's very evident that that's how they they make a living is promoting products, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But it's all about you know where do you get the best advice, and you have to go to people that that uh, that the incentives are right for them to actually p- promote things they like. And, and it's new to me. And 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 give me your take on this. You know when I was guiding and outfitting, I I. What I recommended, it it was what I truly wanted people to use because I knew I was going to deal with the backlash, like either in the field or after the hunt. If I was promoting crap, I was going to get like immediate feedback. Um, I mean, do you feel like that in your guiding? Do you have that same that same approach there? Oh, yeah. You know, I've had a pile of jobs where the equipment that I used, my my life was depending on. So when I was in college... Um, I fought fire and, uh, and I repelled out of helicopters into wilderness areas, which is kind of like being a smoke jumper, except, you know, substantially, uh, more effective. And, and, uh, you know, when you, when you hook yourself up to a helicopter and you get out on the skid, you lean backwards and there's a spotter sitting in the middle of the aircraft. You've got a 250 foot rope going down to the ground. A lot of times you can't even see the ground because of the the timber canopy and the smoke. And you start feeding that rope 
into a, a descent device and you lean backwards and you get completely inverted with your feet on the skids and then you shuck one more big loop into it and down you go and with uh you know with a bigger guy like me and in a hot day that rope gets a little bit slicker and thinner in diameter and there'd be smoke rolling off my gloves by the time I hit to the ground, you know, and it was, you've got to, you've got to get yourself pretty close to stopped on your way down, but you also can't do so in a way that, um, really rocks that helicopter. That's, uh, you know, that I you're tied you. to, right. So once I was on the ground, now I'm in a wilderness area that nobody could hike to, which was the reason that they called us. And you've got to put out a fire without water. Um, you've got a really limited food budget, really limited water budget. You got to put this fire out, sit on it for six hours during the middle of the day, make sure not a single smoke pops out of it, grab all your stuff and then hike to the nearest road. Now, throughout all of this, there's not a single piece of equipment that gets to fail because the consequences of that failure, um, are very much life-threatening, um, if not life ending. So from there to the Marine Corps, to you know, more serious guiding and then professional backcountry hunts and stuff like that. I don't get to be like, oh, you know what? If it breaks, I'll just run to town. Um, yeah. th that's not that's not an option. So if I'm telling somebody, hey, this is what I use. These are the circumstances that I use it in. And this is why I'm using it. I'm saying I'm betting you my life that it's going to work. Um, and that's that's really the level of. uh of commitment that I want people to have when they're endorsing something. And when I see people endorse something like, you know, I trust my life to this air rifle, like, no, you don't. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, like what, what threat are you up against that, that the air rifle can solve it? So, yeah. 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 Um, no, I, hey, Cliff, I, I, give, give me 30 seconds to kick a dog outside this barking. I don't want on your show. Yeah. Go for it, man. I, I don't, I don't hear it, but go for it, James. There's actually a pretty good little muley buck out here. That's nice to see. Nice. And, and James, you're up in you're in Oregon, right? Yep, I'm in Northeast Oregon, and our mule deer dude are about extinct. So, getting to see him is is just a special thing anymore. Right. What what uh, what's the? I'm sure it's a it's a loaded question, James. But we can we can go down that that uh, that road. Why why is that? So most people would answer that with the one thing that they're mad about. Um, but there's a lot of factors, right? Uh, some of these deer have gotten sick. Uh, there is some habitat change. There's definitely some like changes in, in their, their summer and spring grazing patterns just based on weather. And then, uh, man, we have tremendous predation. So there's lots of wolves. There's lots of lions. There's tons of bears. Uh, we don't have a million coyotes around here, but they are a factor. Um, you've got encroachment from whitetail. So it's just a lot of things. They've been declining for 60 years. Yeah. So, and it's just a bunch of diff, a bunch of different factors. Sure. And that in, in, I know you're passionate about this, uh, this stuff, James, you know, in terms of wildlife management, cause it's for sure just an element of a lot of your, your content. So let's uh, talk about it, man. I, I am, I am too. And uh, I, I have a feeling that we probably have a similar take on this. We might have similar backgrounds. I grew up in a cattle ranching family. My dad was a cattle rancher and outfitter. Um, and most people with that background have, have a, a certain, a certain take on, uh, 
on you know issues within within wildlife. And there's probably a multitude of reasons uh, for that, but you you hit on a couple couple of them there. I I I personally think that a lot of times the explanation of our wildlife problems is the 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 real explanation is the simplest one. You, you know what I mean? Um, I think uh, when I reflect on Colorado, I think some of the areas that have problems, it's it's uh, people are shooting too many of them and predators are eating too many of them, right? Um, and and then a multitude of other factors that I think probably that probably just exacerbate that you know that factor. Um, is that is that is that similar to your approach or what are your thoughts? Yeah. So my my thinking is that the the umwelt, you know, all the factors that can potentially affect um, a, a piece of wildlife, it's massively complex and we don't right. understand all of it, but you can simplify it. So, you know, Oregon has enough lions to kill about 360,000 deer every year. And that's, that's sort of, that that's kind of the, the hard numbers of, of what we're experiencing. We have a about 160,000 mule deer left in the state. So there's biologists that will say that the the take from mountain lions is is not additive that it's compensatory and they'll use 40-year-old data to indicate that. But I just have to wonder like okay if we had zero mountain lions and we put an extra 360,000 deer on the landscape how would that affect the population? It seems to me like it would go up. Right. I'm just, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> so, you know, you can look at it from, from this lens of the, the Excel spreadsheet and what it's telling you, or you can just take a little step back and be like, okay, what can I do that might make a difference? And if you kill one lion, that's an extra 52 deer. They get to live this year. That, that's a massive difference. Um, if you kill one male coyote at a den, you just saved 20 fawns that spring. It's a right. massive difference. So I think that, that we, we can look at predation, especially in populations that there are already hurt. A healthy population, um, tends to not be dramatically affected by predators, but a healthy population is not what we have now. Right. And, and because, our predator population has gotten big. Now we're starting to see real issues with, you know, some more charismatic species like bighorn sheep. And, you know, we're losing whole populations of bighorn sheep now. And that's, that's tough. And people care a little bit more about bighorns. You know, they rank higher up in people's, uh, you yeah, know, hierarchy. I, yeah, I, right. I, I, I give a darns about, yeah. Animals. Yeah. 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 And, and actually I, uh, I think that's one of your posts, James, and I want to I want to dig into that. You talked about this this concept of um, the the lions affecting the the uh, bighorn sheep more because they were moving with the mule deer. That was you, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Talk about that because it's super interesting. I, I didn't even I didn't even think about that before this podcast, but what was a couple months ago you posted about it, and it, yeah, go through it, man. It's it's pretty it's pretty interesting way to think about it. So it's a way. It's it's something that happens when you get whitetail that move into an area that has mule deer. So the muleys are native, whitetail move in. This has happened throughout a lot of regions in the West. So what happens is, is the whitetail live in the valley all year, spring, summer, winter, fall. 
um, the muleys migrate vertically with with the seasons. Well, in the summertime and in early fall, the muleys are up in the in the top of the rocks with the bighorn sheep, um, and the lions like to like to hunt up there in the rocks. So the lions go uphill with the deer, and they hunt deer in the summer. Um, and then they, they kill some bighorns and then they follow those mule deer back down to the valley in the winter. Well, if it weren't for the whitetail, they would have a limited food resource, but now they've come back down and there's a whitetail as well. So they get to hunt whitetail and mule deer and that synthetically boosts the carrying capacity for mountain lions in the area. So now you've got a lot more mountain lions because they can breed and, and have have their young at any time of year. Um, and then when they leave, they follow this now even more struggling mule deer herd back up the hill and you've got more lions following them. And then as those mule deer diminish in the high country, the lions just switch to sheep. So having whitetail in your area um, is likely to decrease your bighorn population if you kind of have the type of setup that we do here, which, you know, occurs in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming and, you know, probably a handful of other places. Sure. Yeah. And, and I feel like my experience with lions on sheep, you know, James, and this is just anecdotal, um, but is once they learn how to kill them, um, they will, they will get on them and they will kill a bunch of them in one spot. You know. And the the literature supports that too. Is that lions yeah. that the kill sheep tend to become sheep specialists, and and people are the same way. Like yeah, you get you get some people that you know go sheep hunting once, and they're like, man, that was kind of steep. And then you get other people that that that's it for them. They become sheep people. They're they're sheep specialists. Yeah. So yeah. we have a lot in common with these predators, and I think that's why emotions build up, um, no matter where you stand with it. You know, there's a there's a lot of good ways for us to to really connect with a predator, whether we see it as an ally or or a or a competitor. Um, I, I I think that's just that's just part of it. And then people see a lion and they think it's their house cat, and they see a wolf and they think it's you know their their lab, and it, it's not. But I I get how they can make that jump. Yeah, and man, it this is there's something very interesting about about predators and i feel like the history of predator management um you know in the livestock world wildlife management world i almost feel like the history has been rewritten or forgotten or just wasn't documented well like you know one thing that a lot of people don't you know the, the one like glaring example to me is people always talk about teddy roosevelt if you go read teddy roosevelt's you know, the stuff that he actually wrote, he loved, I mean, he was, he was, he was a fan of predator management, but he personally loved hunting lions. Like it was his, his number, you know, he had a, a passion for it. He had a passion for the species, but he actually just really enjoyed the act of hunting. But anyways, regardless of, of that, it seems to me that the history of suppression of predators and that's in my mind you know that's what it has been in in a lot of ways i know in colorado my view and again it's there's not a bunch of documented evidence of it but you know back in the 70s and 80s when there was a bunch of sheep guys in the wilderness a bunch of cattle guys in the wilderness who were who were suppressing predators it appears to me that that created an era of abundance for a couple decades for the hunter 
Um, and, and James, if you totally disagree with this, I'm going to give you a chance to, to, uh, to, to, to make a, to, to do that. But I, I find that nobody talks about that in some ways. It's almost a subject that people don't want to address. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that one of the, the best ways to get to improve habitat, uh, especially for mule deer, is to put a sheep herder out there for 50 years. Um, yeah. Because that's, that's really what we saw. If you think about it, around 1900, just about anywhere in the West, most of our populations of all kinds of species were very, very diminished. And, you know, a lot of them looked like they're going to be gone forever. Elk hunting was shut down in Oregon for 30 years. Yeah, it's wild to think about. Yeah. Imagine what that first season was like. Oh, yeah, my yeah, goodness. Sure. <laughs> 1933, and you got bulls that have never been hunted in their lives. Holy cow, that'd yeah. be fun. Well, also, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. We're talking about a lifetime, man. Just, just Sure. So what happened now, now all these settlers have gotten here and they're starting to farm all the places that can be farmed, the places that couldn't be farmed. They were either running cattle, which was tough, um, or they were running sheep, which was a little bit easier because you could have a sheep herder that lived with them. You could keep them consolidated and move these bands around and the sheep were overgrazers. So for a lot of the landscape, the sheep were doing harm. But what came back behind them was a lot of second growth shrubs, which was perfect for mule deer. Um, and again, what the stuff that I'm saying is supported in scientific literature. I'm not not just spinning this. So the sheep herders are out there and they're killing every single predator that's trying to kill their sheep. Um, so you have a reduction in predators. They've stimulated the the vegetation to make it really good for mule deer. And that's exactly what happened. So by 1957, throughout the American West, we had the highest mule deer populations that we ever had. We also had the high, the highest inventory of domestic sheep that we ever had. And then as that sheep production starts to fall down and the Forest Service starts to kick um, these sheep herders off of the public land, what we saw was a lot of annual grasses come back, a lot of invasive weeds come in, and uh, the the mule deer and the bighorns um, really started to tank. Now, it was a good thing for elk in a lot of places. Elk, elk populations right now are, are really high in a lot of areas, even though dispersal is not great. But uh, no, I think, I think sheep herders did a wonderful thing for, for mule deer. And they did some bad things for the landscape, but they're incredible people, um, really tough people to, to live out there with those sheep all year long. A lot of respect for them. Yeah, no, I, I hear. I think it's just, it's interesting that um, that you don't hear those those kind of stories. I mean, it well, it's interesting to me, James, because when I was a kid, and I'm, I'm biased, like that's pretty clear, right? Like my, the, a, a cattleman's view on predators, you know, is, is pretty obvious, right? Like they just don't want them to exist. I don't, I don't feel that way, but if you're a sheep guy or a cattle guy, you know, that's, that's what you do for a living. That tends to be the case. Um, I just think that like you hit on a, on a, on a more solid example. I think that we forget that a lot of the abundance over the years is actually related to manipulation on the landscape that, that, that took place over the last hundred years. That, and part of that was predator suppression. Um, 
and I, yeah, it's just an interesting topic. A lot of people, they, I don't know why they want to avoid it. I, I'm, well, I know why it's just the political correctness or, or whatever. And they're afraid of the subject. Um, but I think it needs to be, you know, within the discussion. So, so we, we don't, uh, we don't, uh, you know, just go over a topic that's important when we talk about these species, you know. Well, it, it's also not restricted completely to uh, to European settlers. So when the Nez Perce left my area, because this is where they summered, this is where the Chief Joseph Band of the Nez Perce summered. When when they left here, they took thousands of head of cattle and thousands of head of horses with them. Um, and they crossed all those cattle at the Snake River, again, at the Salmon River, you know, headed towards the Big Hole in Montana. Thousands of head. So, right. you know, in the summertime, a lot of the the men of the tribe would take off. They'd ride over the Lolo. They'd go over to to Montana, to like the Great Falls area, and and they'd hunt bison and come back. I don't think that was about meat. I think the boys just wanted to take a trip. Like yeah. they'd been in a teepee all winter long. You know, might have been getting nagged out a little bit. They're like, you know what? It's it's time. You know, it's the snow came off. We're gonna go hunt bison. Uh, and I think that we're very much the same today. But the fact that they had such a large herd of cattle and they had meat available and still chose to go hunt bison really uh, rings with me because I've got a cattle herd and I still want to go out and I, and and hunt stuff. You know. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally get it. Right? Yeah, yeah. So but it's, but it, it's so weird that we project that that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> that 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 wouldn't be the case. That you know, over the years, that people just go hunting because they enjoy then. Yeah. Enjoy it, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> I I love it, dude. That's a that's a that's a good one. Um, yeah, that's it, an, that's an out of state hunt, right? Yeah. Back in the day, we're talking about you know 1860s, and I'm gonna ride all the way to Montana to get some meat. Like, are you oh, yeah. Me? yeah, 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 sure. Well, dude, I was going to say it before when you were talking about the sheep hunting thing, you know, everybody knows in the hunting world, people get obsessed with sheep hunting. And I think, I think this is probably part of uh, what I'm going to mention here, but I also think it's part of just that in some ways, they're probably a little bit easier to kill, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a primitive hunter, but man, a lot of the petroglyphs that I've seen in Colorado you know, in areas that are now considered like hot, you know, you know, elk country. When you look at the cave paintings, they're mostly sheep. Yeah, you, they mostly paint sheep, it, which is yeah. which is kind of interesting. I, you know, maybe the elk weren't there. Uh, there could be a bunch of different reasons. But when you go in there, and it's obvious, right? Because a you, a curl is pretty easy, even if you're, you know, even if it you're drawn it um, in a cave somewhere with primitive paints or whatever. So that's kind of yeah. interesting, you know. There's there's a couple things we got to talk about here. The first one is that uh, Jim Aiken did a big study in uh, uh, in the Frank Church Wilderness, um, and and he hosted a a place there that had uh, oh gosh, it, it had a university grant, and they were doing a bunch of different research. But in all of their excavations around these fire pits, they only found elk bones once. It was primarily sheep, and you know he found a lot of. Um, rock blinds um, in passes where uh, oh, okay, there'd sure. be lots of arrowheads and, you know, they're driving sheep through in order to, to get them killed. I asked him a little bit about whether he thought that, uh, that they were using dogs to hunt. Cause that's, that's oh, a real okay. sensitive subject for people. Now it's like, you know, whether it's legal or moral or ethical to use dogs or to not use dogs. Sure. And you know, the, the natives had them and they're yeah, a great yeah. tool. I think for sure they were using dogs. Oh, I yeah. would be. 
Yeah, that um, well, yeah, that makes that makes sense. Like running <laughs> running little bands of sheep through choke points and ambushing them. Yeah, either yeah. either gathering animals to you or blood trailing them. You know, that's kind of the the way yeah. that we we tend to use dogs now. Uh, and then the other thing about these these paintings, dude. I think we had ibex in North America. All right. Oh, okay. Some of these some of these paintings look like sheep, and then some of them have horns that sweep all the way back to their butt. Ah, okay. And uh, you look at some of the ones in the Columbia River, and they look like ibex. And then you look at the the same paintings if you go over to Mongolia, they they look exactly the same. Um, and we accept those as ibex, but we don't accept the ones in the Columbia River. Ah, as ibex. okay. That's okay? that's cool. And then also we had this massive flood event from the Missoula flood, you know, 10 to 14,000 years ago, flooded a couple of times and it blew out the entire Columbia river. Um, that, that wave was over a hundred feet high going over 60 miles an hour, pushing wind ahead of it. That might've been a hundred miles an hour. It was five times bigger than all of the rivers of the world combined. Right. So if you want to lose a bunch of tribes and potentially a species that's living along this river corridor, yeah, you can sure. do it in a single flood. So yeah, because yeah, they're because they're yeah. going to be hug, hugging the river bluffs because of the terrain or whatever. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think we had ibex. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I that I mean it makes sense. I and I know what you're talking about on the on the paintings, you know. Um, yeah, but the the uh, the comparison to the the paintings in Mongolia is pretty is pretty uh, interesting. I you know I I think you bring up a broader point. There's so much that you know we, I mean this goes beyond the hunting and wildlife management world, but the history of wildlife and hunters. There's so much that we believe to be true. Like this is exactly how it went down, and then it changes. That opinion changes over time. I'm sure there's there's things if there wasn't ibex i'm sure there's something uh else that was here was in a spot that we didn't realize or or whatever i i ran into uh that a lot when i was kind of digging into to mountain goats in colorado you know the the present day theory amongst the biologists in colorado is that mountain goats are not not native in in colorado um and uh and they've they've tried to to flesh that out so i kind of dug deep into that i i was always guiding goat hunts in there i always had you know, because of their feeling that they weren't native, there was a bias against them for sure in Colorado. There is to, there is to this day. They they sure. For sure are trying to suppress those populations. So, um, in a way, uh, history matters because you know, is that the right decision or not? From my perspective, regardless of history, there's a lot of people who like to hunt them and they don't seem to be hurting. So, you know, I have my own bias in it. But it's like, well, you know, if they were native. You know, should there be more of them? I, I don't know. This is like a discussion that we can we can go round and round in, but in a sense, it does matter, you know. Yeah, but look at all the species we enjoy that are not native. Like let's right. let's just let's start with upland birds, okay? The Hungarian partridge, not from around here. California valley quail. Yeah, yeah, that one's from California. Yeah. Um, the chucker is the national bird of Iraq. Uh, you know, you can keep going down the list and there are a huge number of the species that, that we enjoy and that our ecosystems benefit from that are not native species. Right. And it, 
and it's okay. And the fifties, the nineteen fifties, was this golden age of biologists just running amok, and they're they're just transferring animals all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the new, that's when all the New Mexico stuff came in. All yeah, that. yeah. And like, James, what, I should I should have phrased that correctly. I'm totally with you on this. I think the history matters because it's affecting how state wildlife biologists are managing it. But go for it, man. Oh, I I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Um, I would like to wild west some of that stuff today, you know, like yeah. let's throw, let's throw some Ibex in Hell's Canyon and see what happens. I think they'd crush it. You know, we've yeah, got, yeah. we've got a hundred miles of river corridor there that there's hardly a thing living in. Like let's put some goats in it and see what happens. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, and it's, it's really in order to do that, there has to be this real value on the, you know, having the animal there and the hunting opportunity. I think even the the more obvious one to me at least and you can you can tell me your view on it is it why is it so normal for us to stock trout everywhere you know we we stock trout all over the place but if we were to have you know bighorn sheep stocking programs or elk stocking programs um they I, I mean, if that was proposed in a public forum, you know, at the, you know, at a state government level for wildlife management, I'm, my feeling is it would be like universal backlash. And a lot of it would even come from hunters. Why, why is that, man? Do you, do you have a thought on why that is? Fear. It's just fear. You know, they're, they're afraid yeah. that it's going to up, upset this, this strange notion of ecosystem balance. I was having a conversation with a gentleman last night that uh, that wanted to point out that balance is a verb. It's it's something that we're constantly striving for in in anything, whether it's in our life, um, in an ecosystem. Balance is a verb. It's not it's not a place. We don't ever get there. But a lot of people think that an ecosystem is like a terrarium where they can pull all the right levers and push all the right buttons, and then things will just ride out evenly in perpetuity. Um, and it, it's just not the case. So I think that people are afraid that if they move an animal, that another species is going to disappear and that it will introduce a disease and there will be this this cataclysmic cascade of, of problems um, where that has happened, but it has also not happened. Um, so we're, we're very risk averse now. You can't do anything without like a, a 10-year impact study. And one of the one of the issues with that fear and that reticence to take action is that in 10 years of working on something as a biologist, you've now promoted out of that position, right? That thing that you were passionate about, that you got started and collected all the data from and started to coalesce into some freaking Excel spreadsheet. Uh, now you've handed that off to some up and comer that's you know more passionate about the monarch butterfly. Right. Um, so it's just taking too long. Uh, you know, a species here that that's struggling a little bit is the white sturgeon in, in Hell's Canyon. And they're a tremendous fish. My granddad grew up down there and, you know, he, he got to do some stuff like, you know, hook a sturgeon on a set line on a rope and drag it out of the river with his pony and cut it, cut it <laughs> into pieces to take back to the house as a little kid, you know, just like the, the real epic mythological Hell's Canyon sturgeon fishing. Sure. Um, and those those sturgeon are not doing well today. You know, they've got eight dams between them and the ocean. They've got right. all these warm water species that are in there now. Um, one of their primary food sources was the lamprey. 
which sort of looks like an eel, but isn't. It's a real old basic organism and they're really oily, have a lot of protein, they're slow and they go up the river bottom. So they're perfect for sturgeon and they're anadromous. So they're going out and getting getting big and growing nutrients in the ocean and then bringing those nutrients back into fresh water. Really beautiful system. So uh, the lamprey can't navigate a 90 degree angle on the step of a fish ladder. So okay. we don't get, we don't really get lamprey back anymore. And I had asked the state for lamprey in uh, the Wallawa River that runs through my ranch that we've done big river restoration projects on for trout, salmon, and steelhead. I'd asked them to put some lamprey in there. And again, it was like, oh, you know, we've got to do this impact survey and this study and then get this permission and then, you know, quarantine these. It was just like a, a, a whole yeah. thing. And then I talked to tribal fisheries and they're like, you want lamprey? I was like, yeah. And they showed up the next day with a flatbed pickup and a plastic trash can on the back full of water and lamprey and tipped it into the river. It's like, this yeah, is yeah. great, man. Like, I love yeah. it. Let's, let's do this. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's just a different, it, it's just a different perspective. And, it, and it's changed a lot, man. I mean, you, you see it, you see it even with, um, you know, sheep transplants, moose transplant, like transplanting animals that, I mean, I remember it very vaguely, you know, James, cause it was when I was a little bitty kid, but I remember them transplanting, uh, you know, sheep all, all over Colorado. Like there was no, yeah. there wasn't going to be, you know, you sheep, sheep. I mean, they, they have you bighorn hunts in Colorado. And, and to me, it's like mind boggling, you know, why you would have you bighorn hunts in Colorado when you have habitat that could, you know, used to have bighorn populations. Why would you not trap them and move them? Right. Is, is the logical thing to me, but it's the same thing. There's just so much bureaucracy for them to be able to do that. Or at least that's the excuse that I hear. Um, it's really, it's really a bummer because I don't see the momentum going the other, the other way anytime soon on these sort of things. And in some ways, you know, when we started this podcast, we talked about, you know, you mentioned that there's a, that these are complex systems and there's a multitude of things affecting them. You know, uh, when I reflect on Colorado, you know, you know, stopping winter range development and those sort of things, it's probably impractical. You know what I mean? When you have, when you have a one acre lot in Vail, Colorado, that's worth four or five, $10 million, it's going to be very hard to stop development of that lot right so when you have all those other challenges that are much much harder for us to deal with as hunters um how you know it's too bad that these other ways to deal with it um you know e even little things like feeding elk on the winter range the transplant stuff the, it when we can't do use those tools i feel like we're we're so hindered man we are but we also can't just shove it off on biologists, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, I, I can come across that way. as like, Oh, these darn biologists and their darn Excel spreadsheets. Like it, it's not really like that. Um, what, what you can do as a hunter, um, or, or, or concerned conservationist is you can go down and talk to your biologist and say, Hey, what are the problems facing, um, you know, this species in our area right now? And, They'll say, well, based on what we know, it's this, this, and this. And then you can say, how can I help? And they'll probably have never heard that before yeah. because mostly they just get beat up on all sides. 
So yeah. if you go down there and say, all right, uh, you know, mule deer are tanking, uh, what, what's up with that? And they're like, well, it, it's a number of factors. And then these are the top three. You can say, all right, you know, how can I help? And they'll be like, well, uh, geez, you want to go plant some shrubs? Like, sure, I'll plant some shrubs. You got any sure. shrubs? And we'll be like, yeah, we've got a whole warehouse, warehouse full of shrubs. We just can't find anybody to plant Nobody them. Nobody to plant them, sure. Right. Back your truck up. They'll fill it up and give you a shovel and wish you the best of luck. And now you right. just did something real. You just went out and you helped improve habitat for a multitude of species. And it can be as simple as that. And, you know, a half hour conversation and a day of labor might have put more mule deer back on the hillside or whatever species it is that you care about. Yeah. But start start with getting informed and being open-minded and then try and turn that knowledge into action and you're you're doing some good there. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love it, man. It's a good good piece of advice. And I fall into the category that you just mentioned there. A lot of times I I do too much whining about it and not enough, you know, action. Um Yeah. And uh, I think lots of people do that because it's easy to complain about it um, and kind of, you know, make the biologist community or state game, game management community kind of the enemy. And they're not. I mean, I think a lot of these challenges, including the one I mentioned with transplants or whatever, they, they're limited. They have to follow rules that that, that are, they're exposed to, too. So I love it, man. Man, James, I wish uh, I wish I had another two or three hours with you, man, because um, all these topics are, are crazy exciting for me, but, uh, but we got to wind it up, man. I know you got another call. Uh, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you and, uh, um, tell them about your podcast and all that real quick and I'll, I'll let you go. Sure thing. So you've got the, the six ranch, um, we've got the six ranch podcast and six ranch outfitters. You can find all that on Instagram. Um, but what's more important than any of that is honestly that you get over to YouTube and start watching Cliff's videos. Because I've been, <laughs> seriously, I've been guiding uh, since I was 14 years old, which is 22 years. Oh, my God. Uh, coming up on 23 years of guiding. And, dude, I watch your videos all the time. And I learn something <laughs> every single time. And I have, like, this anger and remorse that I didn't know that earlier. And I think about all the struggle that I could have saved myself if I would had just known this trick. Um, <laughs> you're, you're such a tremendous source of knowledge. And, and you put it out there in a way that is comprehensive and understandable. You're, you're doing a beautiful job. Oh, dude, I, I really appreciate it. So uh, now, uh, James, give them your discount code for my yeah. YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. Yeah. No, I, I, I really appreciate that, man. But everybody out there should, should follow James. You got some super cool stuff. Dude, I wanted to talk about the venison curing stuff sure. that you put on I, Instagram. I, I've, I've got a minute. I've got a minute. All right, let's do it real quick because okay. – because I'm intrigued by it and, and by how how much momentum they have on Instagram. I'm not the only one. So g give the give the <laughs> listener the breakdown. So last year, I shot this buck in early October. And uh, just as an experiment, I took one of the hindquarters and I covered it in salt, just kosher salt. And I hung it back up in a, in a game bag. Uh, and after 10 days, I pulled it down I brushed all the salt off and I hung it back up and it was just in the breezeway, um, next to my shop. So it was just in open air and, you know, we had days following that were 20 below zero. We had days that were 60 degrees above. And, um, I'd got back from kokanee fishing that next spring and it was a real warm day. I think it was 63, 64. I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to go check on that hindquarter now. 
and I pulled it out of the bag and it looked like a piece of driftwood. I was like, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> uh, and I cut into it and it was beautiful. Like this, this cherry red meat that was firm. I was like, huh, I bet I can eat this. So I pulled the rind off and I ate it and it was phenomenal. It was so good. Like it was mild. It was, you know, had the slight hint of nuttiness, uh, you know, maybe just a, the most subtle amount of like blue cheese, which I know is controversial for some people, <laughs> but I like it. Anyways, it was awesome. I was like, huh, this is pretty cool. I made a video and um, a lot of people enjoyed watching that. And I just got all these messages like can you please show us how to do this like yeah well it's for, pretty simple but yeah i can do that yeah sure. um so this fall my uh my dad shot a whitetail doe and i helped him with it and uh i said hey dad can i knock a hind quarter off that and he goes sure <laughs> yeah and uh so i started making videos again and and people have really enjoyed it so a, a little bit of a disclaimer with this um this is how people preserve meat for a lot of human history is with salt and smoke, salt, smoke and drying it out. That's, yeah. that's how you do it. So the salt is going to primarily just move moisture out of the meat. Moisture is an environment that bacteria can thrive in. Dry is an environment that bacteria cannot. So by forming a pellicle, uh, a hardened surface on the outside of the meat, um, you create this, this layer that bacteria cannot get through. Smoke can do a similar thing. Smoke has a natural acidity, um, some natural formaldehyde, some things that that make it a hostile environment for bacteria. And there's really nothing inside the meat itself that can hurt you. You know, that's that's all healthy stuff. Right. So as as that starts to break down, um, you are constantly changing and, and dry aging that product, and you can take it. You can take it a long ways. Um, so there's there's always a disclaimer that foodborne illness is a thing and and uh you know if you try and do what I do you might you might experience some uh intestinal distress but uh I never have and it works great and it's it's really fun but it's a neat way to elevate venison or elk or beef or or duck or whatever because we we can kind of get tired of like you know backstrap and deer burger sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love it, man. I mean, they're super entertaining clips to to watch, too, James. It's pretty, Thank pretty you. cool. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, man. Everybody, go, 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 check it out. And I was, I was, cool. it was crazy, man. Like I clicked on one, like it looked like. I mean, you have like you have like close to millions of people watching the. Uh, yeah, it is millions of people, which blows yeah, my awesome. mind. Like we we made my dad's white tail doe the most famous white tail doe in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Well, people people love that stuff, and I I know yeah. why. Anyways, man, thanks for thanks for being on. I uh, really appreciate your time, man. Thank you very much. All right, folks. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast with James. He's a great guy, and I recommend you go check out his Six Ranch podcast. I was actually just recently on it, so there's an interview of me on there. And James is a great host. I dare to say he's much better than me, so I learned a lot on that front also. But if you want to follow me, you can go to my website, PursuitWithCliff.com. Jump on the newsletter there. Follow me on Instagram at CliffGRY or just go on YouTube and in the search bar, just type in Cliff Gray and you'll find my channel and you, you can subscribe or just check out some videos there. All right, folks, until next time, thanks for listening.